this computer. So this is David Moffat from the Moffcast, and um, I've, uh, I'm setting out to be the oldest podcaster um, in the world, Guinness Book, World Book of Records stuff. Um, I got another 25 years to go. I think I'll be 100 in 25 years' time, so perhaps I'll still be doing it then. But I've got a great guest on today. He's a guy that I've crossed swords with a couple of times um, when I was at the NRL. Um, although I think on balance, we most likely got on quite well. Um, I understood what his job was and he understood what mine was, I think. Um, and we had two different jobs. Uh, and um, yeah, we'll get onto a little bit of that down the track a bit. But uh, it's welcome to Steve Mascord. Hey, Dave, how are you, mate? Why don't you stop at 75 and give me an opportunity to catch up? I want to, <laughs> I want to, compete. I want to compete and be the, the oldest podcaster. Uh, no, mate, you do a good job. Because I've been on your podcast. It was about, oh, she's 18 months, nearly two years ago now when I came on um, and had a little bit of a chat about the NRL. Um, but, mate, uh, I've been doing a bit of research and I'm trying to, I'm a little bit confused about who Steve Mascord is. Is Steve Mascord Steve Mascord or is he somebody else? What do you mean by that? Um, well, I'm living in the UK now. So, so, you know, I was working at Sydney Morning Herald when you were at the, um, uh, you, you were at the NRL. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that kind of run its course, asking uh, 23 year olds about their hamstrings. Um, yeah. um, and I, I married an, uh, an Irish girl and, uh, she wanted to be closer. We met in Sydney, but she wanted to be closer to her um, family uh, in, in Tipperary. And yeah. I was re ready to get out. I wasn't really, I couldn't see much of a future in being a rugby league rider in Sydney. Um, I, and, um, you know, Sarah's got a, a good job. So um, I jumped at the opportunity to move here to London and start again at the age of 50. And whereabouts are you living? We're in uh, Ballam, South London. So oh. it's... it's, it's it's like a it's like Clapham, but not not as many bloody Aussies, you know. <laughs> but who's Andrew John Langley? Oh, right. Well, um, that was um, I've, I've sort of got a copy of my second book here to uh, plug. But um, Andrew, the story—if you just let me get up for a second. The story of Andrew John Langley is in this book. Um, sorry. I should put my headphones on first. The story of Andrew John Langley is in this book. So um, I was born Andrew John Langley and I was adopted out at the age of uh, three months uh, and dumped in suburban Wollongong. And, and my, my life would have been very different if I'd stayed Andrew John Langley because, um, you know, it was quite a bohemian family. Uh, we had some um, uh, Queen's honours in the family, um, um, you know, uh, a, a, a VFL winning captain, doctors. It is actually my... Grandfather's got a, a wing named after him in Royal North Shore Hospital. Uh, so it's actually the uh, ultimate sliding doors moment to be, uh, have been a, a part of a certain part of Australian society and actually uh, ending up in, in a very different part of Australian society. And I, I guess I questioned my love of rugby league and whether I would have it if I'd stayed uh, in Sydney in a kind of eastern suburbs, well-to-do eastern suburbs family. Who, who knows? Yeah, but that's amazing. I mean, I had never, I had no idea. I mean, I always knew that you were somewhat obsessed with rock and roll music, uh, as well as your rugby league. 
And I, I mean, just on rugby league, I, I always found you to be an honest journalist. You know, there are some journalists who are not honest, um, unfortunately, but, but, you know, but there are some, but I, I think <laughs> you may remember this or you may not, you know, I think, I think there was, there's been some talk about some, I think this CEO of the Tigers going on holidays and um, we were up in the, uh, press room because I always used to like calling into the, the media room and having a chat with you guys before the game. It was a parameter. And I just happened to throw away line was that I was going to go on a trip to the Tour de France with my son who, you know, who uh, I thought, was, you, know, oh, you know, I just thought I didn't think anything of it. Actually, I was just going on holidays. Well, <laughs> I know you were one of the guys in the room and, and, um, it just took off, mate. Do you remember that? Well, it came. It, it actually came up. I was talking to Shane Richardson, the former uh, Cronulla and South CEO, just last night, and he uh, said that with uh, you know Pasco uh, going off, uh, you know, on holidays now, and also the, the I believe the Knights CEO mm-hmm. going away as well. That he, he he thought they should dust off all the clippings uh, from that year with you. But I remember kind of being a spectator of that story. I don't remember because the Telegraph always used to have like the the um, arts department at the Telegraph had this kind of um, basic uh, template of a postcard, you know, yeah. and anyone who left during the season, they just put a different face uh, right. on the postcard. And, um, and I'm sure that they were able to whip those, uh, uh, that artwork up in five minutes. Um, but I also remember you riding your bike onto the set of the footy show. Yeah. Uh, and I, if I'm, and it is, it is good. It's sort of gone down in rugby league uh, folklore for those who don't follow uh, rugby league, Dave's, um, um, trip the Tour de France trip is, uh, is 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 sort of seared in the memory of anyone who not just covered but anyone who followed uh, the game uh, at the time. But you didn't end up going, did you? No, you no, no, I didn't. I didn't. It became it became too big a story, you know. And and um, you know, I just didn't want to have myself in the limelight. So, and we've never been to the Tour de France together. Um, but you know, I, we, I was going to go to Tour de France with him and go on a cooking holiday in Italy. Um, and and I and to, to this day I still don't understand because you know I had all the blokes at the uh, at the office that were doing all the jobs I didn't wasn't that hands on at that stuff um, and I was taking a holiday but, but anyway but the interesting thing the interesting thing is that Malcolm Node was the chairman of the NRL at the time and he worked for News Limited and then he ended up <laughs> uh, he ended up at at Canterbury. CEO of you know of the dogs, and he went on holidays in the middle of the season, and I can always remember coming on a flight. I was sitting next to him on a flight down from Brisbane. I think we'd gone up there for State of Origin or something about that. I can't really remember. Um, and uh, and he said to me, he said, "Well, David, you're still going to go on holidays?" And I said, and this time I was being stubborn, and I said, "Oh yeah, I, I don't see why not." But it was so so unreal that here's the guy that sort of was sitting there tutting at me for going on holidays, and uh, and he did the very same thing. It was real. Yeah, well, well, without I don't know what your sort of age group of your um, audience is there, David. I think at one point when um, Malcolm Node was CEO at Canterbury, a player defecated on his desk. So I'd be wanting to go on holidays too. Yeah, if I was in <laughs> mate. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear there are <laughs> there are a million stories mate there are a million stories and of course that's the great thing about rugby league you know people want to sanitize rugby league 
And for the life of me, I don't understand why. Because to sanitise rugby league, you've got to sanitise all the supporters. And there's no way you can do that. They thrive on this stuff. They love it. They live for it. And, and now it is, it's becoming too sanitised, mate. It's, it's, you know, it needs to go a bit back to what it was like before. I'm not talking about the behaviour of the players, but I'm just talking about, you know, all that stuff that would roll around. I mean, the back eight pages of the telly was rugby league. You couldn't buy that sort of coverage. Yeah, I guess, um, it, it, you know, if you work in the corporate world now, though, you know, you're trying to get, get government funding and you're trying to attract a certain type of sponsor and, you know, and then that's why that sort of the attempt to sanitise comes in. And also rugby league is trying, you know, I don't like a lot of a lot of things about the, the current administration. I do like others. You know, they're trying to be socially progressive too. You know, they got behind, um, you know, they got behind um, same-sex marriage and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's just a different, it's a different world now. Um, you know, and obviously over here, the game, you know, sort of, in the UK doesn't have an identity at all. It's just the rugby they play in the North and people, the rest of the country don't even think about it. So um, there, there are a lot of things that go into that. I don't think you can have, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think that the, 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 you know, the, the, the world's moved on. I don't think you can go yeah, back it has. you might want to. Well, yeah, I suppose I might be showing my age, mate. I don't know. But at the end of the day, that was always something that uh, set rugby league apart. I'm not talking about the really bad behaviour of the players, but, you know... I, we, gossip. We, it was gossip. It's obsessed it, with gossip. Yeah, uh, even, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the player transfer thing is amazing, just like running websites and dipping my toe into that. You know, just putting a name in the same sentence as a club that people don't expect them to be in the same sentence, Yeah. that rugby league itself could cease to exist tomorrow. All competitions could... could spontaneously combust and you wouldn't get as many hits as whole KR searching for a new halfback. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. it's, uh, it's, 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 but I know that's professional sport worldwide, you know, isn't it? And I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm, we're going off on a tangent here, but I remember writing a story about you know, someone signing someone uh, in about 1994 and John McDonald, the old uh, rugby league journalist uh, yeah. at, the, at the Herald saying to me, he thinks it should be left for the clubs to announce signings. I mean, that's, that's, that's how far we've moved in sort of 30 years. That is the yeah. absolute lifeblood of sports journalism now is the transfer speculation. That, that's, that's a huge percentage of what everyone reads. Well, as we're seeing with Ponga at the moment, um, you know, with the Knights, you know, that, that's, uh, it's every day where you see that. And, of course, people feast on that because, mm. you know, should he go, you know, what, does, what did Bennett think he was doing going down there to meet with him personally? Uh, all that sort of stuff. And, of course, controversy follows Bennett, um, you know, like like a bad fly. I mean, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, he was the hardest guy I ever had to deal with um, when I was at the NRL, uh, you know, bar none. I didn't like him, he didn't like me. Um, but that's the way it goes, you know. I never held any grudges against him, I just didn't like the guy. Uh, because I, well, mainly, mainly because I thought he 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 believed, and I think he still does, that the entire rugby league world revolves around him, and uh, to a large extent, I suppose it does. But it, you know, that that wasn't that wasn't my view. Um, but but you know, there are other guys like Sticky, um, Brian Smith, those sort of guys that I got along really well with. Mm. Yeah, yeah, oh, there's a lot. Certainly a lot of alpha personalities in rugby league. And again, I think it's reflected um, in wider society that people who 
might be perceived as having bullying tendencies, um, they find it harder in 2022 than they did in 1998. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, we, the, for all the bad things that we have uh, at the, in society now, I think there's a bit of an evening up there um, and the, the sort of uh, the, 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 the um, you know, the bullied uh, have got more of a recourse now generally in most jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, so, so, um, and I often think about, you know, the Me Too movement and how that might eventually reflect on music, you know, with the whole groupie culture of the 70s and stuff. But everyone, I guess from the 70s, you know, I'm not sure how many um, groupies from the 70s really want to come out. And <laughs> 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 most everyone's, everyone's probably got a, you know, everyone's probably pushing up daisies now. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, so it, yeah, it is interesting. And I've seen that change a lot, you know, in my, my time from when I first started where there was a, a cartel in Sydney um, running the game, and even someone like Graham Lowe was an outsider, and and was and and there, you know when he and there were attempts to push him around when he went to Manly. I remember from my earliest times at the Sydney Morning Herald, there was a the old clique at Manly, and the the likes yeah. of um, Graham Lowe didn't get on great, and and Graham Lowe was standing up to them, um, and so I, that clique doesn't exist anymore to an extent. It's a different thing now. It's an alliance between. Yeah. Um, the people, it's an alliance between the people running the NRL and, the, and their rights holders and their rights holders now own newspapers and uh, the media has contracted, which goes back to what you asked me earlier about what, why I left. The media's contracted now, so there's fewer checks and balances. Uh, if, you've got, um, if you've got the sort of the, right, the rights holders are also the ones commenting on your performance. So, uh, you know, those relationships are open to be exploited. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I might have said on your podcast that I came on, I woke up one day and I said to myself, if I had my a choice, would I work for News Limited? And the answer to that was clearly a no. And mm. so then and I went in and I resigned because, you know, I didn't want to work for them. I just thought they were a very ordinary organisation. Um, they, they um, you know, they would belt the crap out of the game in their newspapers, which they owned 50% of. And I could never come to terms with that. I didn't expect them to give everybody a free ride, you know, but, you know, they had, they, you were basically everybody was fair game other than the players. And, and I spoke to Ricky Stewart the other day and I said to him, you know, how did he get on with the media? Because he's, he's still a character, right? You know, you know when you see Ricky Stewart, and when you see um, a couple of other coaches, you know what they're thinking, right? They don't, you know, they wear their heart on their sleeve. And, and uh, you know, I mean, he, he said that he's tried to temper it a bit. And I, uh, you know, and I, and I was a bit sad when I heard him say that because that means that they're getting to him. We want to know what these coaches are thinking. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, but you use, I mean, I say to you. There's two, there's two different issues there, Dave. Like I, I actually, my idealistic kind of uh, uh, fantasy land, I'd like to think that my boss's ownership of whatever their business interests were would have no impact at all on my reporting. And I would applaud the fact that they don't feel, you know, reluctant to get stuck into an administrator just because their boss is uh, doing business with them. Um, unfortunately, what happens is you've got a bit of double think. So yeah. when, it's, when, it's, when it suits you, you claim editorial independence. And then um, I think at times um, there does appear to be um, examples of throwing grenades for your boss. Um, you know, so um, it's either one or the, or the other. Um, 
I never I I never thought it was my job to sell newspapers. I thought it was my boss's job to make money out of my work, and my work was done according to my training and a, and a code of ethics. So yeah. I never I, I never thought it was my job to sell papers. I didn't think my I I, I consider journalism and people laugh at me. Uh, and you can laugh at me, but I think journalism is not like medicine in any other way, except that it's not your job to make money. You know what I mean? It's your job yeah. to it's your job to provide a public service, and it's the job of other people to to find uh, the person who owns a hospital um, or the surgery to make money out of your work. Your job is to actually fix sick people, and and in journalism, your job is to report on things, and and hopefully the people above can um, make uh, money out of what you out of what out yeah. of your work we now have a situation where journalists are being having their their hits count you know their their clicks counted individually and their performance measured on on, on clicks um which is not conducive to them doing journalism uh, you know so um again these are all things that made it a very easy decision for me to leave uh um you know when i when i got here i didn't want anything to do with journalism at all um i've now sort of come back to it to the point where i've I think about it enough to say the stuff I've just said. So yeah, sure. you know, I've, had, I've had, I've had, I've had, I've had a bit of um, time away from it, um, and and I, I think about it as deeply as I ever have now. And I, I practice, I, I write every day again now, um, but I don't really want to go back to a newsroom. So let me ask you this question, uh, mate, and that is: uh, to what extent then do you think a journalist and his bosses should have a duty of care? Because duty of care has become this real catch-all thing, right? You know, and and in the workplace, you've got to have a duty of care for your employees. To what extent do you think that there should be a duty of care when it comes to, you know, hounding a coach out of his job? Or I've never worried about criticism, so I didn't mind the criticism that came my way. But hounding, you know, uh, uh, an administrator out of his job. Um, it's a tough question because I actually come down and, and Ben Eichen was criticised for this, uh, but I'm on his side and I don't care uh, what um, anyone says. I'll, I'll, whatever it says about me, I'll wear. But I think there are certain types of people who shouldn't get involved in public-facing work because, you know, they might have a mental fragility um, um, to, to scrutiny and to, and to publicity. Um, and, and, you know, so I, I, I agree with Ben on that and I think... I think it is a public-facing job, and and if you're a player, don't um, um, delude yourself that you're being paid to play. You actually uh, your entire wage is paid by pay television rights. You're being paid to be a public figure. Uh, yeah. If you just want to play rugby league, go and play in the park and have fun with you, with your mates. So, um, but having said that, I've I don't think I've ever called for a coach to be sacked, and I'm 53 because I don't know what happens in in the room. Um, you know, um, I may have gone as far as to say a coach is under pressure. Uh, the closest I thought that a coach coach's position was untenable uh, was was a, a really good guy, a guy I really liked. But I thought David Kidwell at the last Rugby League World Cup for New yeah. Zealand to not make the semi-finals, I thought that was one of the great examples of a coach's position becoming untenable according to the generally accepted norms of such appointments. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so. Um, so you might say a coach is under pressure because they're a big club. You know, over here, you look this year at Leeds and Warrington, who, um, uh, who, who, who spend a lot of money on players, big, rich clubs, and, and they're, they're underperforming. Um, so I would say according to the history of those clubs and the expectations people have of them, the coach would be under pressure. 
um, and, and and I think that's a fair uh, thing to say. But I don't, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I think you've got to sort of, you know, back things up with facts and figures and, yeah. and precedent and history. And I think your job as a reporter is to give things context. So, in the court, in the, in terms of a, um, I guess a, um, a match coverage or or, or a, a panel conversation, you're the one who's supposed to say this is how it happened before. This is what that means. You're supposed to interpret what someone says, or the implications of what they say. You know that's 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 your your job. I think the ex players are better at talking about tactics and, and stuff like that. So, and the presenters are probably better at talking down the barrel of the camera than than you are as well. Yeah. Um, so everyone's got their role. Uh, so I think there is a. I don't know. I I I'm more about internalizing because I think I think mental health now gets um, mental health now gets brought up a lot in terms of any time anyone says something unkind about someone else. Yeah. Um, they say, what about his or her mental health? And um, I think when your job is as a, as a, a kind of um, a, a kind of policeman, I always say you're the referee for the rest of the week. The referee's got everyone for 80 minutes and the journalist's got them for the rest of the week. Um, you are going to be in a position where you're quoting someone saying unkind, or yeah. if you, if you, if you, if you're writing an opinion piece, you're saying something unkind, and 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 um, and that can impinge on people's mental health. No one likes criticism, and some people aren't suited to be entertainers or TV hosts or actors or yeah. professional athletes because they're sensitive and, and they're susceptible to to depression or whatever. And I think that I think the person people have a duty of care over themselves as well. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with that. I think I think I mean if I look around the world at in rugby and in in uh, rugby league, there there are a lot of um, people in the roles that I had that are terribly thin skinned. You know, they they just cannot tolerate any sort of criticism. You see that with the New Zealand Rugby Union, with the Welsh Rugby Union, and organisations such as that. The, the nearest hint of criticism, and you know, all hell breaks loose with the media. And I always quite enjoyed. The criticism because I enjoyed the back and forth, you know. I enjoyed a little bit of the uh, the repartee, and and uh, you know, I made a, I made a, I made a decision very early on in the piece that if I was going to be doing media, then I should enjoy it, and I did. You know, I really did enjoy it. Um, I enjoy doing this sort of stuff as well, and not not um, for for no other reason that perhaps people watching this and listening to you may not have ever heard this side of you. You know, they might have in your podcast. I don't know. But, you know, um, and this is what I'm what I try to get to is the, you know, the real person behind, you know, their public persona. And I think and, um, I think sports administrators now, though, they hide themselves behind a wall of PR and like, yeah, you know, I know David Gallup and I think yourself, you know, that you'd set aside time, but maybe between five and six. To return calls every day, and they don't return calls now. They don't speak direct. To, I mean, I, 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 I'm guessing uh, Peter Blandis obviously has a, a good relationship with with you know reporters at the two main mastheads, who are also his rights holders. Um, very good relationship, in fact. But uh, yeah. but generally speaking, you know, um, you know, uh, when Robert Elston was over here at Super League, you know, he didn't talk directly to the media. He didn't return calls every day. And I've got to say, the media over here probably didn't put in a call to him every day. Um, so, because it's just a different relationship, it's and the English, you know, British idea is a bit more reserved and less personable and direct than the than the Antipodean uh, way of dealing with things. But but sports administration generally has become very corporate, 
and um, yeah, and and they will get um, a PR person to ring back. And I really despise the off the record briefing. So you know, you will have you'll get someone ring you who can't be quoted. So there's a major issue in a in a sport, and 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 there is actually no one from the organisation running that sport who will be quoted uh, on that major issue. But they'll give you a off the record briefing, and um, basically it can be used to test the water. Uh, they'll give it a give a view. Uh, you'll say, you'll write a story saying it's understood the league believe this or will do that. And if the response is bad, they can deny having ever spoken to you and change their policy. Um, yeah. And to me, that's gutless. I won't do it. You know, I had a, my last days as a columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, you know, had a thing where a guy from the NRL who's a friend of mine who was working media rang and said, that thing in your column's wrong. And I said, I want you to be quoted saying what's right. He said, I'm not going to be quoted. And I said, well, um, the, you should care more about a falsity about the NRL getting into the public domain than I do. So if you don't care, I'm not changing it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that was, um, and, and, it, and, you know, I find also the people who work in media care more about their own reputations and their own future job prospects than, than getting um, the message across uh, to, um, not talking about that fellow particularly, but just generally. Yeah. Um, they're they're more, more concerned when they personally get criticised uh, then, then when their organisation gets criticised, then I think all these things get uh, fixed if people are willing to front up and be quoted on the record. Yeah. So um, in respect of the, the rugby league um, scene in the UK, obviously it is played in two, basically two northern counties, um, Yorkshire. Very big in Cumbria, but they don't, have a, yeah. they don't have a team in Super League. They don't have a team in Super League. No. Cumbria is quite a strong county. Too. Strong county, yeah. But they also have... Um, some some teams with presence down down in London. I mean, the London Broncos they've fallen on hard times, and uh, and I know that uh, from something that you you put up on LinkedIn the other day that you you've got a, a bit of a soft spot for for a club um, which is called the Scholars or Scholars. The scholars, or- yeah, Scholars. It's actually you asked what it's named after. It's actually named after the pub that was up the street. It was the Scholar. Uh-huh. Uh, S-K-O-L-A-R. So uh, it's not, not, it's not, they're not pretending to be terribly um, smart. Uh, <laughs> it's it's pretending to be good at scholing. But um, uh, yeah, no, I, I always went to Broncos and Scholars, you know, since I got here. And I imagined a kind of um, semi-retirement where I, you know, stood, stood next to the pitch with a beer in my hand every Saturday or Sunday. Um, if one was home, one was away on alternate weeks, if they were that well organised and just watched, you know. Um, but, but, um, a couple of uh, about oh, four weeks ago, maybe I was asked to, would I be interested in being on the board of scholars? And um, and I, I mean, I've always been, you know, I'm I've made it clear since I moved here that I was keen to um, get involved in the on, on your side of the fence, Dave. It's actually very hard to break into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I, I did some call. Um, you know, people just see you as you know you're a journalist, and plus they kind of see you as a bit of a loose cannon. Yeah. Um, you go through you go through these kind of. Uh, I've been through this kind of uh, arc where I, I actually at first started to shut up and not give my opinion on social media because I thought it might help um, uh, me, you know, um, being able to make a difference behind the scenes. But I didn't really get anywhere. Um, and I, I probably, I probably, um, I didn't sell my soul, but I put it in the, in the front window and I offered it for sale and no one bought it. <laughs> so, um, so, so I've gone back on that. I think, I think what, I think what, I think what people expect from me is uh, is is to be 
first and foremost a journalist and a commentator, and I and if I if I sacrifice that, I got nothing. But nonetheless, um, I, I I you know I try trying to help the R, um, the R, uh, nines as well, 